the University of California Riverside presents Blue, Gold, and Black, the podcast that's dedicated to amplifying Black voices at UCR. I'm Dominique Bill from UCR's Community Engagement and Outreach Unit. In each episode, we'll be talking to UCR students, campus leaders, and community partners to explore the intersection of being Black and being a Highlander at UCR. And I can't wait for you to meet today's guest. Let's get started. What's up, everybody? Welcome back to the Blue, Gold, and Black podcast. I am Dominique Bill, your host. Today, we have a very special guest whose voice we're going to amplify, Dr. Jennifer Brown, who is our Vice Provost and Dean of Undergraduate Education here at UCR. She is also a full professor in our School of Public Policy. Um, And today, we're just going to be talking about Dr. Brown's upbringing and some of her past experiences um, and how she brings all of those experiences here to UCR to um, further the cause for our students and, in particular, our Black students. Dr. Brown, how are you doing today? I'm great. Thanks for asking. Of course, of course. Thank you so much for being here. So I gave you a brief little introduction, but if you can, for our guests, could you please, in your own words, describe to us your positions here at UCR? Sure. So um, hello, everyone. I um, have the pleasure of being the Vice Provost and Dean of Undergraduate Education, and sometimes it can be a complicated Um, thing to discuss. (laughs) I sometimes tell students that if I'm doing my job, you don't know that I exist. Uh, But my job really is to think about how to integrate all experiences, mostly academic, but how to integrate experiences where when students come into the university, uh, they have a seamless transition and that they progress through their degree and they finish, hopefully within four, but sometimes five uh, plus years. And so uh, I oversee various organizations uh, throughout the university. So if you've ever taken a summer class, the folks that put that term together report to me, uh, the vice provost and dean. If you have ever gone to uh, UCDC, or UC Sacramento, or you've worked in undergraduate research, you were a chancellor's research fellow, folks uh, who do that work report to the vice provost and dean. If you, um, well, any of your faculty who are teaching remote, uh, the folks who are in charge of the Center for Teaching and Learning, which we call Excite, report to me. Um, If you've taken uh, English 1A, 1B, 1C class or uh, taken the AWPE or the examination of college writing, uh, that group reports to me. If you've been to the ARC, uh, so if you've ever done peer mentoring or tutoring, et cetera, those folks report to me. So, you know, in addition to managing, you know, different areas on campus, I convene different groups like um, the advising leads for each college, the associate deans. I talk with uh, the faculty senate, uh, the registrar, different folks to make sure that um, what you all need academically is in place for you to succeed. That's a lot, <laughs> to, to, to say the least. That's a lot. And, you know, uh, just to kind of give you some credit, it really sounds like everything runs through you when it comes to undergraduate education, at least in some type of way, or you have your finger on the pulse. And you may, you said something interesting about if you're doing your job well, students shouldn't know or won't know that you exist. Can you kind of expand on that sentiment a little bit? 
Yeah. So, you know, typically when you come to a university, um, you probably know your college advisor. You probably know, um, you know, the professors that are in your campus. It took a while, even when I was an undergrad, to understand a dean or what a dean does or that they were a representative of your particular college. Right. And so because I'm not a dean of a particular college, um, you wouldn't necessarily know to come to me. But um, I interface with so many different folks on campus, as you put it, you know, their eye, my eye, excuse me, is on the pulse. Mm-hmm. Sorry, photobomb of my no daughter. Worries. Who's five. That's the deal. <laughs> yeah. Uh, but so you wouldn't necessarily know to come to me, right? You know, so I'm speaking with advisors. I'm speaking with folks within the college. I'm the one who sort of is at the institutional level, understanding the nuances of different colleges or the things that they need uh, help with. Um, Another thing, just real time, I'll give you an example is, you know, working with, for example, our folks in student business services or financial aid. So right now, because we're remote, there, you know, is a little bit of a lag time um, in financial aid response. And so, you know, I hear about this. I may hear about it from uh, an advising lead or supervisor of the advisors, uh, we call them SAMs, um, that may say, hey, I'm having a lot of students who are having issues with X. I may then go and talk to the folks in financial aid. Can you talk to me about why? And I'll try to broker a deal, figure out how to best help, um, you know, work with the folks who report um, to financial aid or up through another person such as myself Uh, to try to come up with a solution. So I'm always thinking about how the institution works. So it's sort of the behind the scenes. If you went to a restaurant, you don't know all of the things that happen to get your meal cooked. You just know that you order X and it comes out on the table. So, you know, I'm sort of the person, I'm like a conductor, basically, who's trying to put all of these things together. No, thank you for sharing. Um, And, you know, even with my limited experience working in higher education, um, it can be kind of hard to conceptualize a lot of these positions, especially these more senior leadership based positions, right? We have the chancellor, then we have an executive vice chancellor, then we have vice chancellors, then we have provosts and deans. Um, Can you talk about, even though you just said, right, it's a lot of behind the scenes action, right? So when a student steps on campus and they see everything popping off at the hub and (laughs) it's just, it's the machine is running, right? We don't see all of the strings that are being pulled behind the machine. Can you just kind of talk about why it might be important for students to have Um, a little bit, at least a small working knowledge of these various positions and these figures on their campus so that way they can better grasp the full picture of what this higher education experience is? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I I think that one of the interesting things about a campus, uh, if you could envision, so maybe for our incoming freshmen who maybe did not get a chance to do you know, on-campus tour, maybe mm-hmm. have to do it virtually, you know, in, in other times, because I don't know what our new normal will be. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to come on campus and you say, oh, this is the University of California, Riverside. And, you know, you see beautiful trees and you see, you know, buildings and then you go to the hub and, um, you know, you go to your classes. And at least for me, when I was an undergrad, 
maybe even until I became a professor, it just seemed like one big ecosystem, right? And that there, it just all works together. And there's so many different parts that have to come together. So for example, for folks who live in uh, the dorms um, or in the campus apartments, you know, there's a separate entity that takes care of that, right? Uh, called auxiliaries. And, um, you know, folks who are in, who work for housing and dining, um, you know, are the folks that spend time um, you know, making sure that there's a housing contract or that your dorm is clean or that the trash is picked up outside. I mean, all of those things work together, right? So we have a grounds crew. We don't think about who's typically mowing the lawn or making sure there's no debris. Um, and I grew up in the Midwest. So, you know, for us, when it snowed, you know, automatically the the sidewalks were cleared, right? But I don't, we don't think about that as part of the campus uh, infrastructure, there are different groups. So, you know, one key thing that uh, at my level, we talk about what's called academic affairs. So things that have to do with, you know, actual coursework, et cetera. We may have another group called student affairs. And those are folks who are really in charge of, you know, your out of class experience, anything from your clubs and organizations to residential life that might do programming inside of the dorms uh, or inside of the campus apartments. So there are all of these different groups that are coming together to make the ultimate campus experience. And it's actually really cool. It's complicated, but it's very cool. No, very complicated. But well, I would say complicated to if you have no prior knowledge, right? Um, But once you have the opportunity to talk to folks like yourself, right, and you you do a really good job at kind of just breaking it down and helping a student conceptualize. And it it is really just kind of like separate cogs in the machine, right? So one cog is kind of like the academic focus, which is where you're heavily involved in. And then the student affairs side, which helps that cog rotate, right? But it's not academic in nature, as you've once um, told me, but they still work together to try and create this holistic experience um, for the students. So just to kind of break away from the work that you're doing here at UCR just for a little bit and to try and add some more context into who you are and what you do, could, you mm-hmm. already mentioned that uh, you grew up in the Midwest, but could you tell us a bit more specifically about where you grew up and the experiences that come with that? Absolutely. So I grew up on the South side of Chicago um, and you know, Chicago is one of the most segregated cities in the United States. So if if you've read Michelle Obama's Becoming book, you know, she talks about how um, when she grew up and, you know, bless her heart, she's older than me. So, you know, let's say maybe 10 plus year difference where she's saying that when she first moved to the South Side neighborhood or when her parents first moved to the South Side neighborhood, there were um, you know, more Caucasian folks in her neighborhood, or there was a good mixture, right? And as uh, African-Americans moved into that neighborhood, you saw a lot of Caucasian, they used to call it white flight, right? They left and went other places. So in the time that I grew up on the South side of Chicago, there was maybe, if you think about a, um, a street, um, or we used to call them blocks in Chicago, where, you know, you had one block of houses, you might have seen like, you know, an older Caucasian person, you know, one one person on the block, right? So maybe somebody who still lived there. 
But ultimately, I grew up around uh, all African-Americans. And that really is interesting when I think about my fifth grader who photobombed us um, and how she grew up. So, you know, a lot of the things that uh, is happening now, maybe I took for granted because I grew up in a place that was, you know, concentrated with folks that look like me. Um, We were taught black history in our schools, you know, I had a lot of African-American teachers. And when I think about it now and how my daughter is growing up, you know, one, she's in a dual immersion school. So she learns all of her subjects in Spanish. And I'm realizing, for example, when we lived in Oregon prior to here, they didn't talk about black history at all. Um, that she is still in California, the minority in her class, right? So Part of us coming to California was for her to be able to integrate and um, interact and be around folks that look more like her, right? Olive hues, brown hues. Uh, but by the nature of the school that she goes to, she still is primarily um, around uh, Latinx folks, which is not the worst thing in the world. It's, it's, it's a great thing, right? She gets this opportunity that I've never had. But I didn't understand at the time when I grew up how special being around folks, not having to question, you know, that there were other folks that don't look like me. And I'll even go this step, uh, this this next step, because in California, where most people have pools, the conversations that we have to have, mom, do I have to put my swim cap on? Right. Uh, Because I feel embarrassed about putting my swim cap on when other folks can just jump in the pool and their hair gets wet, et cetera. These weren't things we we had to talk about growing up in Chicago because everybody put their swim cap on because <laughs> this wasn't the style back then. And our hair was long and, you know, it took a long time to get it done. Right. So there are definitely differences from where I come from. And although I feel that my daughter is living a life that is different from me, which is what she should have with a mom who has a Ph.D., there are some things that come along with that. Um, And just really quickly, I'll share one friend shared with me a while back when I was thinking about moving to Oregon from Indiana, uh, which is where I started professionally. And he said, you know, with your socioeconomic status, it's just never going to be the same. Right. It's never going to be the way you grew up in Chicago. And so you just have to think about how do you instill um, values and make sure she understands who she is. Um. And what I think of instantly is just socialization, right? Um, how how do we socialize our black children um, to navigate this world, pretty much? Um, and I think, you know, one of the, another term that I think of a lot is just like this concept of cognitive dissonance, right? Um, specifically because your daughter is growing up with plenty opportunity, right? A lot of opportunity that you weren't able to take advantage of. And I think as great as that is, I think what you're saying, kind of like the, how you took your upbringing for granted is in order to achieve more opportunity, to achieve more resources for the next generation. There's a weird thing that happens in America where you have to remove yourself from the community at some level um, in order to obtain those things. Right. Um, And as simple as being 
you know, instead of one of three black children in the classroom, you know, there's 25 of y'all. Um, and that goes a long way. And can you uh, just, I guess, really kind of focus more so in being able to look back at your upbringing in hindsight, um, some of the black experiences that you faced in Southside Chicago that helped reinforce your identity as a black woman as you got older and started getting ready to venture out into college and in the real world and things like that? Oh, absolutely. Um, and thanks for, for bringing us back to that point. I mm-hmm. think that just the fact that there were folks that looked like me, I didn't have to question, right? So, sorry, she is my frame of reference, you know, kinky hair versus hair that is straight. Everybody had kinky hair. Maybe some had relaxed hair, but everyone's hair looked like me. So I never, the the questions that she goes, you know, that she thinks about, I've never had to think about. Um, She's going to be 10 and, you know, um, she's starting to develop you know, attractions for different things, what she likes and what she doesn't like. And again, when you're raised on the South side of Chicago, where everyone in your class, um, you know, it wasn't until I went to high school that there was someone of a different race in my class. And that still was pretty rare, right? So there's never um, a thought about what is it like to be attracted to someone who's not your race or, um you know, I didn't understand that folks had teachers that didn't look like them. It was the opposite, the complete reverse when I went to college where I'm like, where are the black folks? <laughs> where are my black professors? Because it never occurred to me that there wouldn't be any because every, you know, there were uh, the, the school teachers were integrated. You know, not everyone was African-American, but there were more African-American teachers than there were anything else. Right. So it was never um, searching for someone who looked like me because everyone was an automatic role model. It was something I didn't even have to think about. Um, The neighborhood folks were like me. Right. You had, you know, folks who maybe uh, didn't go to school and got into a little trouble. Y'all know what I'm talking about. But even they knew who the smart kids were and they weren't going to mess with them or they were going to make sure that you went to school. Or I remember uh, even one time. I was going to the store to get something for my mom and uh, these group of young boys were like, what are you doing outside? Right. Because <laughs> my mom didn't let me go outside a lot. And so they know these are the folks who are doing X and we're not going to either bring them into, you know, these other situations. And it's just different, you know, so it did. It, it increased self-esteem because there was never a question of whether I could do something or not. It was, this is what I was going to do. I was going to college. No. Um, and I, I, I like that you kind of brought up that concept of one community, right? Because like you said, you know, we all know folks that, you know, partake, partake in different types of lifestyles, but it's still that aspect of like, we going to make sure you get to school safe or you're the good student who has scholarship opportunity. You don't need to be out here type of stuff. But what I also loved is that you brought up self-esteem, self-esteem, identity, self-image. All of those things are so, 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 so important for black children. Um, And even, you know, with experiences that I have with uh, my daughter, um, we've kind of gotten over that hump a little bit, but, 
you know, my full disclosure, my baby was bald for like the first two, two and a half years. Um, but once her hair started coming in extremely curly, you know, uh, similar to mine, um, and, you know, I, my mo- my mother is white and so she has a white grandma. And so she developed an infatuation with straight hair. You know, she re- always asked, can I get my hair straight and this, that? And, you know, I had to like drill into her. Right. Until you learn to love the hair that you have, we can't do those things. Not yet. You know, not frequently, because it's important that you understand that this is who you are yes. um, and Straight hair is no better than kinky, curly hair or whatever you want to describe it as. So that whole idea of self-esteem and self-image that maybe you don't have to think about as critically when you're immersed in your people, in your culture. Right. Um, But, you know, again, back to what we said, affording opportunities kind of pulls us away from that in some regards. Um, And so we have to have different conversations with, you know, the younger generation. Um, And so thank you for sharing that. And you just mentioned you always knew that you were going to go to college. Um, Was that something that was inspired to you right by your parents? Was it something that was just innate to you? Like, that's what you wanted to do. Talk to us a little bit about your relationship um, with education. Yeah, absolutely. So my mother was a strong proponent of education. Um, So I don't know, to be honest, if I can separate out whether it came from me or from her, but there was never a if. It was, where are you going? You know, my mom was a person, uh, well, she's alive, so she, she is a person who used to take us to the suburbs where I would say the bigger houses were, you know, to give us something to aspire to. Um, And I remember, you know, if you ever played, you know, that's my car or, you know, that's my house. I had already picked one out and I knew in order to get that house, I needed to have an education. Um, You know, so she made sure that I was in the best schools that she could get me in. You know, we weren't in private school or anything like that. We were in public school. But she was active, she was involved, um, and she didn't accept mediocrity. So, you know, if you came home with a C and you were like, you know, I did what I could, that was not good enough. You know, I wasn't not watching the Cosby show for the <laughs> for the next term until I got my grades back up. Uh, but, you know, so she instilled that in me. She uh, is a college graduate. She was a non-traditional student. Um, in fact, she went to school at DePaul in Chicago, uh, which is, was a commuter campus at that time. So, you know, she didn't have the going away to college, going to a dorm experience, but she knew that education changed lives, right? And so when I transferred to high school, uh, it was a, I'm going to say 99.9% African-American um, high school, but it was one of the top five high schools in the Chicagoland area. And they had over a 90% placement rate in going to college. You know, I was an upward bound. And I remember sometimes um, trying to skip tutoring to do other stuff. <laughs> that's when those neighborhood people were like, what are you doing outside? <laughs> Go to tutoring. They didn't say that, but that's what they were saying. Um, so it was it was my mom who mm-hmm. just, you know, it. there was no other way. And so, you know, I would go on the college tours with Upward Bound Um, And I wanted to go to college back then. A different world was on. I mean, that was something you wanted to experience. You wanted to have that experience. And I couldn't wait 
uh, to to leave and go have that experience. Get a little bit of freedom, huh? Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Go out and hit the streets in a responsible way. <laughs> yes. 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 We'll, we'll yes. just leave it right there. <laughs> but yeah, it was it was it's my mom, and mm-hmm. uh, I really appreciate everything that she's done for me. I think that she led me to college, but then I had to do the work. And I think that's what I really want to share with folks who may listen to this. I had to do the work and it wasn't a straight path. I flunked out of school. Um, I had to go to a community college. I had to work and get my grades back up. I had to transfer back. Um, there were points in time where I feel like I disappointed my mom. I disappointed myself, um, but I persevered through it. Right. And I can say Uh, with no shame, that that was my path. And it was my path for a reason. I think it allows me to understand different things that happen with students in my role now, right? Because not every student is coming straight from high school. Uh, In fact, I was with some students the other day, some student parents who, you know, um, have all types of circumstances. So anyway, just back to the motivation, you know, It was never a question of if it was just when, but when I finally got my groove, I fell in love with education. And if someone was to tell me today that I would be the vice provost and dean or that we'd even be having this conversation, I would say no way. I was just a young black girl from the south side of Chicago. And now I have this opportunity to help other folks and show them how much education can change their life. And let's let's kind of talk a little bit about that perseverance um, that you had to display throughout college because I I was the same way. Well, luckily I I didn't get expelled. I was on my third strike though. And, you know, I had the, the, the deans and the academic advisors at the game of Thrones table and they were like, yo, we feel for you, man. And, you know, we, we, we empathize with you, but this is your last chance. Anything lowered in the C a C minus even like you're out of here. And, you know, I I had to get my stuff together. I had to take responsibility over the, the lack of support that I was, you know, that I was receiving because I wasn't going out and getting that support. Um, And I think especially like when we look at black students and we look at retention rates across the country and things of that nature, like black students are getting into college. They're not finishing the way that they should. Um, So talk to us a little bit about that perseverance um, a little bit in more detail to try and let students know that this is something that is obtainable. Um, You're going to hit those low points, right? Uh, But you can overcome it. And some of the things that you did in particular um, to overcome some of those, those struggles that you faced um, in college. Well, so One of the things I think um, I think a lot of folks may resonate with is if you think about when you go to college and especially if you're the first in your family or one of the few um, who might be able to obtain this dream, there are folks that can be your cheerleaders, but at some point may not know how to support you. And I think about Um, I'm trying to think of the best way to try to explain this. Sometimes you have your, you have, so you have two feet and one time, you know, sometimes one foot is in one world 
and one foot is in another world. And you have these tensions where maybe, let's say your left foot, it's what you are comfortable and used to. And you have to find a way to assimilate into this other world, right? And I'm going to use that as college, where there are um, less knowns, more unknowns, and sometimes the advice and information that you might have gotten from your mom, a family member, whoever, if they've never experienced that world, they may not be the best people to give you that advice. And that's hard. Now, for me, you know, my mother went to college, but when I went to graduate school, that was a totally different beast. And I had to actually stop listening to some of the things that she was sharing with me. I even had to explain some things to her. I remember we used to talk a lot, uh, just about every day. And when I was working on my master's degree, uh, you know, there was a point where you have to write a thesis and... Um, you know, it, if sometimes if you lose that thought, you're never going to get it back. And I remember she called and I had to tell her, I can't talk to you right now. Right. Because I have to finish writing my results. And sometimes I don't get those thoughts back. And she was offended and her feelings were hurt. Um, if I bring this back to the undergraduate experience, you know, and I hear this a lot with uh, first generation students and it doesn't matter the ethnicity. But, you know, sometimes students are facing explaining why they are going to school as opposed to a path that maybe another family member thinks they should, you know, pursue. And you have these tensions and you're trying to figure out these unknowns, um, these unwritten rules that you don't know. Some people have never told you, you know, uh, if you walk in 10 minutes late, you know, the professor has their eye on you and Um, They're going to always be looking to find a way to challenge you. And I'm making this up fictitiously, but it can be true in some Mm -hmm. ways. And so I think, you know, the hard thing is to figure out how to navigate and how to find somebody who has gone through this before to find a mentor is the best thing that you can do. In the time that I was in undergrad, you know, it took me five and a half years to finish. Um, But I finished. And there were these angels that just out of nowhere, I mean, they were real people, but they were, they, I see them as angels, Mm -hmm. people who were placed in my life at different points in time that either helped me get over a hump or pushed me through a certain scenario, but I had to be open to them. And I'll share with you, not all of them look like me, which was different for me. Right. Mm -hmm. And so it's being open to some of the uneasiness that you're going to feel when you step on campus as a Black scholar and understanding and letting go of the need to be right all of the time and the need to feel like you know everything. Not you know, No one knows everything, not even the folks you think know everything, mm-hmm. know everything. And so it's, it's an acclimation of letting go of that left foot a little bit and moving it over to the right side, you know, so that you can be in this other world that is a little bit uncomfortable. And I'm glad that you talked about it because it just kind of keeps up with the theme that I've been experiencing throughout all of these interviews and mentorship, right? But particularly like how, and I think, you know, it gets a little bit more complicated even within the Black community 
between the older generation and the younger generation. And it's just lived experience. The older generation had to do X, Y, and Z to get to where they're at. And the younger generation has to do A, B, C to get to where they want to go. Um, and so I, I agree with you. I always try to, you know, let students know, like, you have to be open to receiving resources to be receiving guidance. And, you know, a lot of our students come in with that chip on their shoulder. They have to work extremely hard to get here. They have to work even harder to stay. Um, and sometimes you can kind of feel like you're, you, you, the work that you're putting in might be invalidated if you go to the tutoring center, if you go to the psychological center, if you go to African student programs, right? Or if you go and try and reach out to a Dr. Brown for guidance. Um, and so just to kind of like flip it now that you are where you're at, just to kind of give the other side, like what, talk to us about how critical it is for folks like you in positions like you to meet these students where they're at, because I'm not going to lie. If I'm a black student walking into campus and I feel like I need resources or maybe I see Dr. Brown and you're the first black face that I see on campus. And then I see that you're the vice provost and dean of undergraduate education while being a full professor at the like all of those titles can be very intimidating yeah. for a young student who just doesn't know any better yeah. so from your vantage point how important is it to meet students where they're at to try and help them be more open to engaging in resources or asking for help so it is one of my um favorite things to do is to meet students. Uh, but particularly when you talk about meeting students where they're at, you know, just come as your authentic self. That's mm. really, you know, if, if, if you have, you know, two feet in both worlds, let's just be honest about that. Right. Um, you have to just come and say, this is an experience that I don't know what's going to happen. You know, so if I just backtrack for just a second, there, there's nobody on this earth that could have told me that I was going to be in a position like this at my age doing what it is that I'm doing. Right. Mm -hmm. um, I believe it to be hard work and it to be a blessing. But I have to be open to people's criticism, constructive criticism. Right. Things that are going to help me to be better. So going back to your question, you know, meeting students where they're at. Um, I'll be honest with you. Not everybody is going to be Dr. Brown. Not everyone is going to be able to openly sit here and say, I flunked out of school and I got back up and, you know, I was a professor and I'm doing X, Y, and Z. It is your job to authentically take in the conversations that you have with folks and you'll get a vibe to help you see whether this is someone you can approach. I hope to be that person. I hope if you meet me, you can see that, you know, I might be busy and on my way to something but that you can see that I am concerned and that I care about students. And I hope that you would reach out. Um, if I see students on campus and I see them, you know, particularly over and over again, I usually stop them and say hi. Um, and I hope that you're receptive to that. You know, when we get back to a place that we can get on campus and, and stop and see each other. Right. But you have to be open. Uh, one other thing that I just want to share um, is it doesn't have to be me. And I hope you heard many times that not everybody looked like me. So it could be a professor that you just kind of, you know, hit it off with. It could be a TA. 
that you like. It could be a friend, but it's really important to um, think about a couple of different things. One is um, you're paying tuition and fees, whether it's through financial aid, whether it's, you know, scholarships, somebody is paying your bill to be here. And one thing I didn't realize when I was going to school, I was telling my daughter this the other day, when you fell a class, you pay for it again. You know, this isn't, remember I was raised in public school. So, you know, I didn't fail things, but it's offered again, you take it. But when you think about that, you're paying X amount of dollars per class, plus whatever fees you're paying, when you don't do well, and this isn't for people who just, you know, if, if you fail something, you didn't get it, that's a different story, right? And then you have to take it again. Those things happen too, happen to me. But yes. for folks who maybe are just not going to class or I wasn't doing X or I got caught up more into this and therefore I didn't do well and now I have to take it again. I didn't think about the economics of um I'm paying twice for something and now um, I'm real cheap. I don't want to pay for anything more than what I have to. The <laughs> other thing is seriously, because that's how you keep your money, right? Mm-hmm. If we're not spending it all the time and we're saving it, then then we can you know, aspire to do some other things. The other thing too, though, is with your fees, you're paying for, you know, these free resources. Well, they're not free technically, but you're paying for these resources to be available to you, right? Yes. So the ARC, um, when I went to school, we had a um, we had a, a group of peer mentors that were African American, and they sat us down and they gave us sort of the rules of the University of Illinois, and they basically were saying, when you see another black person on campus, you speak to them, right? Because at that time, probably still now, uh, weren't that many of us, and you recognize somebody else who was able to get into this university. Mm-hmm. The other thing too was. If I saw a black face on campus, I could automatically talk to them. And I know now we're in our phones. I'm even sometimes in my phone, you know, as we're walking past. But we have to build these connections. And I hope that COVID has shown you that social connection is important. Um, But going back to these fees and thinking about, you know, these services, the ARC and, you know, writing support and all of these other things, you're paying for that. Why would you say I don't need it? Um, No one is judging you if you know, you go to these services. And in fact, you know, this is where I was going with the peer mentors. That was one of the first things they told us. Sign up for the tutor before you even know you need it. I'm I'm so happy that you're touching on this because I, <laughs> I tell students that all the time. I'm like, yo, because I think back to my undergrad uh, experience and how underutilized all of the resources were, you know, by me. I was only doing tutoring because I failed a class or I was right. only going to my academic advisor because uh, I'm on probation. Like, you know what I'm saying? Like, I'm struggling and that's why I'm using the resources as opposed to being proactive. But I tell students, you're going to pay, you know, 15 grand a year to come to a UC institution, UCR, hopefully. Within that 15 grand, there's probably like hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of resources that are at your disposal. It's not cheap to go and get a psychological counselor if you're going through mental health issues, right? That's a resource that you have at your disposal. If a show ain't cheap to travel to another country for X amount of weeks to months to study and do these types of things, you can study abroad, right? Right. Um, 
academic tutoring and stuff. There's people that pay hundreds and thousands of dollars, right, for their students to get the tutoring that they need. That's at your disposal. Career training, that's at your disposal. And so if you're not using these resources, you're extracting no value out of the cost of your tuition and fees. And that's the difference that students need to understand. Your tuition and fees cost what they cost. But how valuable, right? How much does that dollar cost? And if you're not extracting the resources out of your university, all of that value within that $15,000 gets lost. So um, thank you for kind of emphasizing that point um, to our students. So we're coming close on time. I just have a few questions to wrap up in um, kind of bringing it back to your position as uh, the vice provost and dean of undergraduate education. You're here to serve all of our students, period. But how do we still, and more so for people who find themselves in senior leadership positions like you, how do you navigate and keep black students centered in the work that you're doing to help all students? I hope I asked that question good enough. Just one thing I want to point out uh, to your last question. Mm -hmm. Every resource I've told you all about, I've used. I've used tutoring. I've gone to counseling. Nothing wrong with any of that. Mm -hmm. And it helps with clarity and it helps you to be a better person. Um, So I just want to share that, you know, I am a personal testament that I'm not telling you to do anything that I've never done. Myself included. I I had to take therapy in college. You know, it's it's necessary. It's absolutely necessary. It is. But to answer your question about, you know, um, helping all students, but also, you know, thinking about how do I be of service to our African-American students? I don't know how to answer that outside of saying I'm an African-American woman. Mm. Right. Um, And you're right. I want to make sure that all students have an opportunity at education because, again, I have seen how it has changed my life. As a professor, I traveled all around the world. Before I had my child, I traveled all around the world. Um, I remember the first time going to Africa for free, you know, through a grant where, um, you know, I remember my mom calling me on my cell phone saying, do you feel the ancestors? Because she was so proud that I was there. Yeah, and absolutely. I'm, and I'm saying that as a, you know, a, a tangent quickly to let you know that there are things I've done that just I have never imagined. So when I use that as my North Star, right, of um, I'm here to help better students, to empower students, anything that I can do to help them with the caveat that they have to do their own work, right? I'm not, you know, giving you the answers to the test, um, but I'm going to push you to study and maybe follow up and check up on you. I do that for any student. Mm -hmm. Now, um, I'll tell just one 30-second quick story. My daughter just finished her first round of braces, and there was this African-American woman who was um, the person who, like, changed her rubber bands and stuff like that. She, She was very cool. And I know she was nice to all the kids, but I know she gave my daughter extra love. Mm. And that's the only way I can think about answering that question. I'm here to help all students. I'm going to help any student that I see. But when I see my African-American sisters and brothers 
I want to make sure that they know I'm here. I'm going to make sure that I take the time to strike up a conversation with them. Um, you know, from this podcast, you can already tell I'm here and I'm available. You know, um, we can have lunch. We can have virtual lunch. Uh, we can have lunch in groups. We can have lunch individually. But, you know, I'm here to answer your questions, to help you understand how to navigate, uh, to help you understand how to work with your professors, ones that like you and ones that don't. Um, so I think that's my answer to that question. I, you know, there's there's nothing like your own. Uh, mm-hmm. Although, you know, when I think about it from a humanities standpoint, I want everybody to get an education. Um, but but I, I share a little extra love. <laughs> no, and... And I, I love I, I love the honesty and the almost the simplicity of the answer because it, it it's just it's just about being seen, right? And seeing the humanity in folks. And you know, our people have had a history of being denied humanity, right? So that's why something as simple as you walking down the street, you catch eyes with another black person, we, you know, we give that head nod or, you know, that slight salute. Like, I see you. I, I, I know that you're here. I know that you're a real person. Um, and I'm here for you. Right. And so I, I appreciate you sharing that. And so um, I, I want students to kind of just take away um, all of the things that go into making this higher education experience here at UCR. Um, and Dr. Brown is a, a, a key figure in all of that experience. So the last question that I have for you, because this has been a great conversation and we're definitely going to have to have you back on to keep pushing this conversation forward. Um, but the last question, and you kind of touched on it a little bit, but when we think about future generations of black scholars that are going to come through UCR, what is your most optimistic vision of the future for them? Oh, wow. that That's a big and deep question. It is. It is. Yeah, it is. Well, my optimistic um, future for generations to come is that whatever our students are going through now, we will have fought through um, or found a um, solution for some of the things that we are facing. So this sounds bad, but if there are challenges, let they let them be new challenges. Right. Let us, you know, this morning when I woke up, (laughs) I uh, do a little meditation and then for about five, 10 minutes, I go on my Instagram or my Facebook. It is my mindless, you know, thing to do before I get into a very heavy day. And Mm -hmm. uh, one of my cousins had on his Facebook a sign that said something about please stop killing us. And he says this was from 50 years ago. So this is what I mean by. If we have challenges, please let us have solved, you know, the challenges of today and let there be new challenges of tomorrow. That is what I hope. Um, You know, I don't think we're going to have a rose colored future where there's nothing that we need to overcome. But, you know, can we get through, um, you know, what's happening with with, you know, killing our, our, our black folks? Can we get through a place where we are seen and acknowledged Um, you know, without having to do extra effort. Um, And I know we're at the close, but I I just feel compelled to say this. You know, Mm -hmm. I am uh, virtually a fifth grade teacher when I'm not a professor or the vice provost and dean. 
And one of the things she's working through right now is the Constitution. How do you talk with your child about the three-fifths compromise, that you Mm. were three-fifths of a person? So, again, my short answer is, you know, let us have new challenges. Let us have solved some of the things that we are going through today. No, um, that's beautifully said. And, you know, it, it goes, one of the things that my dad used to tell me a lot is like, make new mistakes. You know what I'm saying? Like, if I have to tell you the same thing five times, like I'm hot, you make a new mistake, I have a little bit more leniency, right? Because that's a new thing that we have to work through. And, you know, he didn't say it as nice as that all the time, but that was the the general <laughs> principle behind it. Um, so thank you so much for sharing that. Um Dr. Brown, we we super we super love having you on um, the Blue, Gold and Black podcast. We're super happy to amplify your voice today. Um, I think your words are going to hit with a lot of students or a lot of individuals that will come across this. So we really appreciate you being here. Thank you. Thanks for having me. This was fun. I hope what I said made sense. And I hope that uh, folks get, you know, something out of it. We are here to help you. Mm hmm. No, absolutely. And I, I worry about that all the time. Even when I'm asking my question, I'll be like, man, I, I feel like I just rambled on and I don't I know if they understood me, but someone, someone's going to hear it and it's going to impact someone. And, and that's what we're looking for. So thank you once again, um, everybody. Make sure you check us out, like and subscribe, and we'll catch you guys later. Thank you for joining us on Blue, Gold, and Black. This program is produced by the Community Engagement and Outreach Unit of Undergraduate Admissions at the University of California, Riverside. Learn more about attending UCR by visiting admissions.ucr.edu. And be sure to check out the description for other useful links and resources. Help support this podcast by liking, subscribing, and sharing. And be sure to check out our podcast videos on YouTube. Catch you guys later.